You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third Squad is a documentary podcast about war. All episodes contain strong language and graphic descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. I don't break down crying very often. It's not like I'm a tough guy or anything. It just doesn't really happen, even in the privacy of my own home. Until one day, it does. In the driver's seat of a rental car in the departures lane at George Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad. Episode 3, The Guilt. It's the first Saturday of March 2021. Third Squad producer Tommy Andres and I have 1,500 miles to cover between San Diego and our next stop, Houston, Texas, where we're going to visit Manny Mendoza, that hardworking kid from the Texas border town who joined the Marines because of 9-11. We turn away from the Pacific Ocean and soon we're cutting across the desert within sight of the Mexican border. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. That's all the words, that's all all we got. We hit El Paso just after dark. We wolf down some Mexican food and then we're back on I-10, heading deep into the heart of Texas. We're making great time, but we're not supposed to be this far along yet. There was another Third Squad veteran in the San Diego area who we were hoping to meet up with. Third Squad's Navy corpsman, Matthew Forrett, who the guys called Doc. Here he is telling me about his job back at patrol base fires in 2011. Yeah, I'm pretty much the closest thing to an actual doctor out here. But it is a lot more than that because I'm also handling, like, not just the major emergencies, but minor emergencies as well. Like when these guys get like sick with colds or when they get like a fucking like rash, they don't know anything about it or whatever, you know, I'm the one person they turn to. It wasn't hard to find for its contact information when I started tracking down Third Squad last winter. But my calls and texts went unanswered for months. And it's been pretty disappointing to think I might not get to talk to him. Because none of the Third Squad veterans had a more intimate perspective on the physical destruction caused by IEDs. 
or a more crushing burden of responsibility in the immediate moments after an explosion. But there's another reason I want to talk to Fort. Something big happened to him after I left Sangin, and I've never heard the story firsthand. I'd just about given up on Fort when somewhere in West Texas, my phone rings and I see his name on the caller ID. We turn on the recorder. Yeah, I figured. I got your name. I got your name saved in my phone. How are you doing, man? Doing all right. What's What's new? What's going on? So, as I understand, you're going to be in Houston tomorrow, correct? Yes. Forrett cuts right to the chase. He says he's going to be in Houston while we're there, and he'll actually be staying with Mendoza, the same guy we're on our way to see. He says he got my messages and he's willing to talk, which is a huge relief. But he says he doesn't have much time. So we make a plan to meet up as soon as we get into town. All right, well, cool. Thanks for calling. No problem. Bye-bye. We drive into the early hours of the morning, catch a few hours of sleep at an off-ramp hotel in oil country, and we hit Houston the following afternoon. In a stroke of luck, we find a last-minute Airbnb just up the road from Mendoza's apartment. It turns out to be a strange place, like it was decked out by someone on a bad honky-tonk acid trip. The walls are painted Fanta orange and decorated with no-name 45s and cheap cowboy hats. And the only light in the room comes from a single bulb and a dingy ceiling fan. To make matters worse, every surface in the place is rock hard, right up to the glass coffee table, which means the acoustics are going to be terrible. But to quote the late Donald Rumsfeld, you go into an interview about war with the Airbnb you have, not the one you want. We barely have time to settle in before Mendoza's pickup pulls into the driveway. Howdy, partners. Hey. How's it going? All right. Long time no see. Yeah. How are you? Oh, You're all right. a little bit hairier. Yeah. You're a little bit grayer. Yeah. Thanks, man. <laughs> you. I haven't seen these guys in 10 years. Mendoza looks more or less the same, with a shock of gray hair and a bit more roundness to his cheeks. But for it looks totally different. In the portrait I took of him in Sangin back in 2011, he's clean-shaven and has a strong tan line from his sunglasses and helmet. His head is buzzed and his cheeks are all hollowed out. But the guy standing before me now has wavy red hair slicked back and hanging down to his shoulders. He's got a full beard and black-rimmed glasses. He's wearing Doc Martens with jeans and a black t-shirt stretched over his belly with the logo of a metal band called Three Teeth. For it has apparently left the high and tight military culture in the dust. We're going to catch up with Mendoza later. He hops in his truck and takes off for work and we step inside with For it. Oh. Yeah, this place is kind of weird. <laughs> We looked for the closest Airbnb to okay. where Mendoza lives, and it's a little, yeah, it's a little strange. It's a lot. It's a lot. Somebody really likes to decorate. Um, it has got a flight back to San Diego in the morning. We only have a couple hours, and we have a lot to talk about. So we grab a couple Shiner box from the fridge and jump right into it. It's really great that we were able to get in touch, and I'm really glad that you're here. I was starting to think maybe we weren't going to get to talk to you. So thanks for agreeing to do it. I really appreciate it. And it's important to say right up front that 
I know a lot of this stuff was not easy to talk about then, and it's not easy to talk about now. And yeah, it's pretty accurate. <laughs> I'm interested to know what you were feeling when you saw my messages and when you, you heard that I wanted to talk to you and why that made you nervous. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot with that. Right. I just, what did that conjure up for you or what were you feeling? You know, I mean, I, I think it just brought back a lot of bad memories from that time. So, and I kind of like, I mean, yeah, you know, I'm really, like I said, I, I'm not really good at, you know, these th- kinds of things and these kinds of interviews and such. So I guess like, I got a little uh, nervous, if you will. I can see for it's anxious. He's literally recoiling from the microphone. But back in Sangin, he was one of the most open of the whole bunch. And his interview from 2011 has stuck with me more than most over the last decade. Especially his vivid descriptions of treating casualties during the June curse. I remember you saying that after this string of IEDs in June, that you were justifiably, let's just say that all of your senses were firing on all cylinders at all times. It sounds pretty accurate. Yeah. I guess I'm just trying to understand like the daily level of fear and anxiety and what that felt like. Like, what did it feel like to live with that every day? I guess it, to a sense kind of aged me a bit and kind of definitely, I, mean, I know stress has a lot, has a big impact on your physical health. We had a lot of guys who uh, started to losing their hair, started turning gray earlier, like dudes who were in their like not even past 25 start to get like bald spots and gray hair. Everyone was worried about getting blown up. But for it carried an extra load. He knew that whenever an IED went off, the casualties' lives would be in his hands, and he would have a matter of minutes at most to stop the bleeding. Very large amount of pressure. As soon as you go out, you never know, you know, is this day going to be the day when something happens? And I'm the one thing that's going to determine whether or not someone's going to be able to go home again or whatnot. Back when I met Ford and Sangin, he was just trying to get through the days one at a time, hoping like hell there wouldn't be any more IEDs, but always preparing himself for the next one. He was impossibly far from the West Chicago suburbs where he grew up. For it wasn't a gung-ho teenage recruit like some of the third squad guys. In high school, he got teased because of his weight. 270 pounds at just 5 feet 11 inches tall. His size was a big problem for him when he first started thinking about joining the military. He told me about it when I interviewed him at PB Fires in 2011. Like, I originally wanted to join the Navy about two years ago. Um, I had to wait, though, because I had trouble with my weight. Like, I was a little bit, like, overweight. So I had to, like, work out for a little while, and then I was able to join. Along with his weight, Forrest struggled in high school with a learning disability called dysgraphia that made it hard for him to write clearly. He got bullied and had a hard time making friends. In his own words, he was a loner. He spent his free time playing computer games and listening to metal and goth music. After graduation, he took a crack at community college, but he dropped out and got a couple of jobs working backroom stock at big box stores. He was 23 and still living with his parents when he started worrying that his life was going nowhere. So he called a Navy recruiter. At first, he thought it would be cool to be a master at arms, basically the Navy's version of a police officer. But by the time he cut enough weight to ship to boot camp, that job wasn't available anymore. 
And so they read me off the whole list of different jobs and they told me about Corman and asked what Corman was. Corman basically, they said you do two things. You can either A, work in a hospital, or you go with the Marines pretty much as a field medic. So I said, okay, I'll take that. When Forrett finally signed his enlistment papers, he became the third generation in his family to join the Navy. Forrett's parents were proud of him, but it was a time of war, and they worried about his decision to become what's known as a greenside corpsman, one who serves with the Marines. But Forrett had made up his mind. He went off to boot camp and hospital corpsman school close to home, at Great Lakes Naval Station north of Chicago, where he did pretty well. Back when I was in high school, I was always good at science and biology. And I used to be in I used to be in the Boy Scouts and I knew you know I already knew a little bit about first aid and shit. So that's why like when I when I got to core school it was pretty easy. There would be no easy days after core school. For its next stop was Field Medical Training Battalion, or FMTB at Camp Pendleton, where he learned how to treat casualties in the mayhem of ground combat. Then he completed a grueling live tissue course, where he and his fellow trainees had to treat live pigs and goats with real life-threatening injuries in simulated battles. The blood was real in live tissue training, and for it took it seriously. He knew that he was going to get fast-tracked to Afghanistan, where the life-and-death scenarios would not be simulations, and where the blood would be Marines. Pretty much like... Every day on FMTV, all we heard was just basically 3-5 this and 3, you know, all the, like, it was like every day it seemed like 3-5 was taking casualties, especially Corman. It seemed like they were losing Corman left and right. When I got here, of the company that we replaced, only like two of the original Corman remained. Everybody else had either been like blown up or shot or something. So yeah, when I got here, I was paranoid as hell. <laughs> Forrett's paranoia was entirely reasonable. In 2011, Sangin was one of the most dangerous places on the planet. 3-5, the battalion that Forrett's unit replaced, had 25 Marines killed and 184 wounded during their seven-month tour. That's almost one in every five. Third Squad hit the ground that April, and for a couple of months, things were quiet. But the grace period expired. And on June 12, 2011, Forrett's training would be put to the test in the most serious way. We were going up to uh, where third platoon was to resupply them. And I was like in the back of the patrol when we first heard the explosion. I saw this big ass, huge uh, 60 foot mushroom cloud just shoot up in the air and I was just like, the first thing I did, I just sprinted towards the front of the patrol and as soon as I crossed the bridge, uh, that's when the second IED went off and that's what I got hit. When I got blown up, like, I lost my hearing for a couple of seconds. I just stumbled. I kind of felt straight to my knees. I didn't black out, but I just kind of s- sat there confused for a couple of seconds, just wondering what the hell was going on. And then when the dust cleared, the, guy, the dude who was in front of me, Lance Corporal Elliott, I just saw his entire face was just covered in blood. First thing I did, I just looked down to make sure I was still okay, make sure I still had my legs and arms, and then I just went straight to McDaniels. 
He's talking about Joshua McDaniels, 3rd Squad's combat engineer. When I got to him, he had been pretty much like, his legs were gone almost, at least the flesh around his legs were gone almost up to his waist. But pretty much like, I would say six, yeah, six inches below his hip was like where it had stopped and everything else below that was just bone. The blast had shot straight up into him and his, like I said, his genitals had been, well, they were intact, had been pushed up into his abdomen and everything else around his perineum and on the other side of his thighs were just torn up. It, was, it looked like seared, it was pretty much just seared raw flesh. First off, I tried getting the tourniquets on him. Um, like I said, his the flesh around his leg was pretty much gone, almost to the point where it was like it, it was hard to get a tourniquet on. I, like a lot, I had to like even like the metal one, I had a little bit of difficulty just trying to get it on because it, it was like slipping off his leg almost. So, and I like I applied like three tourniquets on his right leg and one metal one on his left leg, which had a little bit more flesh on it than the other one. And then I began stuffing both his wounds with as much gauze and combat gauze that I had just to try to get the bleeding stopped. But I tried getting an IV start on him, but his veins were just too blown out. He had lost too much blood. And he was starting to go into unconsciousness and starting to lose a pulse. Uh, what I did was I, I, like, I grabbed an EpiPen and just injected it with him. If you give someone an EpiPen, shoot them with a drill, and it gets their pulse right back up and their blood pressure back up. So that's what I did. And after that, I was able to actually get a weak pulse on him, and then we got him on the bird. So what's going through your head when you're when you're doing all that stuff? I was just basically like. Pretty much just pretty much like just constantly saying to myself, fuck my life over and over again. I had just gotten blown off myself after that, so I was a little bit panicky as well. But I just like just went in there and just like, you know, do what I thought was right to try to save him. McDaniels was beyond saving. And the IED that killed him was only the first of several that day. By the time the dust settled, 16 other men had been wounded, including Forrest. Three of them lost limbs. Forrett's eardrums got blown out on June 12th, and he suffered a traumatic brain injury that made him want to puke every time he moved for days. The nausea eventually subsided, but he couldn't stop obsessing over the details of that day. After the incident, I was kind of like going through my mind to myself, maybe I should have done this, maybe I should have done that. I told the, cor- the other corner around me what happened. They said, hey, you did, you know, you did what you could do. You did the best you could. There's not a whole lot you could have done for him. Forrest had a new appreciation for his training and a new awareness of its limits. See, like, the problem with, like, core school is that, like, you go through patient assessment and you're like, okay, what do you do with a gunshot wound? What do you do if you got an amputee? And, you know, you, go, you explain the steps and blah, blah. But it's not like you get these clean-cut wounds that are like, okay, I patch you up, you're good as new. You get these wounds that, like... You look at it and you're like, holy shit, how am I going to fix that? For it learned with McDaniels that there are some wounds that can't be fixed. 
He also learned that his bonds with the Marines went way beyond professional obligation. When you care for someone, you tend to like work a little harder to like for them. It's not just like some random person. Now it's it's like it's someone you know, someone you actually care about. So you're gonna put a little more initiative into treating them and make sure they come back home safe and alive. And if like something does happen to them, you just feel like devastated when it does. It like hits you really harder. A lot more than if it was like some random stranger in like a hospital or something. Because this is someone you've like, because these are people like I've, I've spent time with, I like, ch- I like talk to, I chill with, I constantly see on a regular basis. Third Squad had become a second family to Fort, but his real family was back in the Chicago suburbs. So far from Sangin, they may as well have been on another planet. Like our, when our first mass cast happened, I did get a chance to talk to my folks, but I didn't tell them completely what happened because I didn't want to scare the crap out of them. At least I wanted to like, I wanted to wait till we get get back and then tell them everything that happened. But then uh, they got an email from Tim Poulton's wife explaining what had happened with uh, McDaniel's and O'Brien. And they were, and then I got next time I t- called them after that, they're like, "Hey, what's going on?" And then I told them what was happening. So now now everybody's pretty much scared out of their minds. <laughs> Sitting in the safety of the Houston suburbs together all these years later, I want to know what sticks with for it most from the deployment. I would say for me, it would definitely be uh, working on, uh, on McDaniels and then afterwards being extremely shook up by the whole thing and, and finding out that he passed away on the bird and everything. The, you know, smell of like iron from the blood and everything and, uh, That'd be probably one of the things that bothers me the most, I would say, that still kind of haunts me. There's another clip from 2011 that I've been thinking about a lot ever since Fort walked in the door. Actually, I've been thinking about it a lot longer than that. Tommy cues it up for us. People tell me it's got to get, you know, it doesn't really, really hit you until you get back to the States and you actually see their families and shit. And you see the guys walking around with, like, prosthetics. So, I mean, that's something, something I'm going to have to probably deal with when I get back. But, I mean, I just try like, I just try to move on. That was weird, hearing me say that, mentioning prosthetics. Only well, to end up with a prosthetic. That was a bit odd, <laughs> hearing me say that. The thing that everyone in Third Squad was worried about happened to Fort. He stepped on an IED. We'll be back after the break. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. 
Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So just so I'm clear, what day was this again? What, what was the date? 21st. Okay. The 21st of August. Yeah. Do you remember what you guys were going out to do? I remember uh, we were going out to a farm. We found something suspicious by some dude's house, some dude's farm. And we came back, waited for EOD to, to arrive, and then we went back out there. That's explosive ordnance disposal. Basically the bomb squad. We had just crossed one of the canals, and I remember taking a few steps forward, and I just, the first thing I saw was this kind of giant dust cloud kind of pop up in front of me, and that's when I heard the boom. My first thoughts were, all right, this is it. I'm gone. I guess I fell to the ground. I was dazed for a bit. I mean, I wasn't unconscious. I was just dazed and a little confused for a moment. Then dust kind of settled down and kind of like just sat there for a couple of seconds. But I kind of came to, and I kind of first thing I did was just I just kind of patted myself down and. And I'll be honest, yeah, first thing I patted down was my dick. Because <laughs> that's, that's what a lot of guys do, pretty much, in all honesty. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm somewhat okay. I'm good, I'm still alive, and I'm still here. And that's when I felt the pain in my foot, and I realized that part of my foot was missing. My guys came rushing forward, they started treating me, kind of like pointed out some things, what to do, what not to do. I told him, leave the boot on, because that's kind of what's going to be holding my foot together. All the Marines had basic medical training, but for it was the expert. And now there he was, coaching his friends on how to help him. The one thing you do in those situations, you don't take, a lot of people would want to take the boot off. You don't do that. That's kind of acting as like a, an accessory splint, so sort of help, helping to keep all your stuff together down there, so... Then I remember getting uh, hoisted onto the bird, 
getting sent to uh, Leatherneck. That's when things kind of got hazy. That's when they started, I guess, operating on me and everything. I don't really remember a whole lot from that. I'll be honest, to say I was high was an, would be an understatement. I was pretty much in fucking outer space. <laughs> the amount of pain pills I was on. Since you were the corpsman, were you usually farther back in the ranger file, farther back yes. in the patrol? Yes, that's why I think that's why a lot of people were kind of like shocked by that because I was usually the uh, third person from the last, from the end of the line. So, so a lot of people walked past it. Yeah. I mean, that that happens. Uh, I forget who told me, but they had actually done a little experiment where, uh, I think it was EOD, they uh, took a pressure plate hooked up to a small amount of explosives, like enough to fill like a firecracker, and they like drove over it. I think it was like 17 times before it actually went off. Wow. The way it was out there, you can step on one, but it won't go off, and you never know you were stepping on one. That's how scary that shit was anyone in third squad could have stepped on that ied and because he was so far back in the patrol and the marines marked where they stepped some of them probably did step on it for it was the unlucky one that day but that's not how he sees it honestly i I really lucked out i found out later on that it was about 10 pounds of explosives and only two pounds actually went off obviously if the whole thing went off and the fact that they also buried it kind of deep. It was like pre, like I'd say about two or three feet deep. If it weren't for those variables, probably wouldn't be here. Forrett got medevaced back to the U.S. by way of Germany. First to San Antonio and then eventually to his new home, Balboa Naval Hospital in San Diego, about an hour from Camp Pendleton. When is the first time that you really take stock of your injuries? Right when I landed in San Antonio... I, uh, I just lifted it up, and I just saw that my uh, foot had looked like a piece of chunk of meat with a bunch of, like, skewers punched through it. They were using a bunch of pins and to hold it together. And that's, that's when I kind of really realized, oh, wow, how bad that was. And what did they tell you? What did the doctors tell you when they first came to, to talk to you? Oh, they, that they're going to just do whatever they can to save the foot and everything. The unsanitary conditions the Marines were exposed to in Sangin could make injuries like Forrett's much worse. They had no running water and went days, sometimes weeks, without bathing. And they were constantly wading through canals to avoid IEDs. Those canals are basically, that's where they throw all their garbage, all their sewage, bones, stuff like that. At Balboa, Forrett's doctors grew concerned about his lack of progress. They told him those unsanitary conditions may have contributed to a nightmare infection. The infectious disease doctor took a, uh, a live culture from my uh, foot, and I believe what he said was it was four different types of bacteria just pretty much eating away at the flush. He was the one that noticed that there was this just big, giant, like, glob of pus leaking from the foot. And... They must have had you on gallons of antibiotics at that point. Oh, yeah. I was like, I had two separate IVs in me of antibiotics and painkillers. Forrett didn't want to freak out his parents about how dangerous it was in Sangin. But there was no hiding it anymore. They flew from Chicago to San Diego as quickly as they could to be by his bedside. They had to wear head-to-toe isolation gowns and maintain distance because of Forrett's weakened immune system. He was dazed from the pain medication, but it was a comfort to have them there, 
especially his mom, Darlene. So what was it like for her to come and find you injured? And She was just glad I was alive, pretty much. And she did get a little bit emotional. I'm sure it was kind of hard for her not to be able to touch me and hug me and everything. But, but yeah. she was there to help you? Yeah, she stood out there for uh, a month with me in San Diego and helped me out. With the severity of his injuries, it was clear that Fort was going to be in the hospital for a long time. The infection in his foot just kept getting worse, and the aggressive antibiotics didn't seem to be having any effect. One of the Navy surgeons laid out a grim prognosis. He was talking with me and said, you know, hey, we're going to leave it up to you whether or not you want to, like, take off the leg or try to save it. We're going to be honest with you. We've seen this numerous times, and most of the time, people usually just end up getting it cut off. They said if, if, if I tried to save it, more than likely, I'd be still in the inpatient for an additional seven months. It was after they got done talking to me, and actually that's when I kind of agreed, okay, let's just take the leg off. The surgeon amputated for its infected foot above the ankle. And with the foot gone, he thought he could finally focus on healing. But then, lying in his hospital bed at Balboa the night after his amputation, Forrett got an unexpected call. Michael Dutcher was dead. When that happened, I pretty much broke down and started crying like a baby. I'd just gotten the leg cut off when I had heard about him, and I kind of lost it a bit. I took his, uh, his death pretty hard. Forrett had a special fondness for Dutcher, because Dutcher always had Forrett's back. When I first got to the, got the platoon and didn't really uh, know a whole lot and didn't have any real experience with Marines, he kind of helped me out and... You know, a lot of people weren't really willing to help me out, help me, you know, adjust to the unit. He was always, always there and everything. That chubby kid who had to cut weight to join the Navy struggled to keep up with the Marines, who pride themselves on being physical beasts. The tactical stuff was challenging, too. Dutcher was there to help smooth the way. He was definitely one of the uh, most helpful Marines I knew. He was always, always there and everything. So that's probably my best memories of him. When Forrett found out about Dutcher, he totally shut down. Yeah, that's why I do when I, like Eb said, I just kind of, I do kind of isolate myself for a bit and then I kind of move on and such. So, but yeah, when I heard about that, I was straight up devastated. Do you remember the first person who you talked to about it after the phone call? Yeah, my mother. She was there. Third Squad wouldn't be home from Afghanistan for several weeks. But a few of the guys from PB Fires were recovering with Ford at Balboa, including his original platoon sergeant and squad leader and one of his fellow corpsmen. They scrambled to get permission from Naval Medical Command to fly out for Dutcher's funeral on September 23rd. For it was hardly a week out of surgery when, pumped full of drugs and with his corpsman buddy pushing his wheelchair, he boarded a plane for North Carolina to say goodbye to Dutch. I have a hard time remembering that you know, day. It was right when I got out of the hospital. 
and I was on a lot of medication. You know, I have like bits of pieces of it in my mind. There are some things for it does remember clearly. The crowds of people who came out to the Western Carolina State Veterans Cemetery to pay their final respects. And the love he felt for the wounded men who helped him make the trip. They pose for a picture in front of a sloping field of identical granite headstones together. Ten of them. Five in wheelchairs their uniform pants pinned where their limbs used to be. Back at Balboa, Ford eventually healed up enough to move into his own room in an outpatient facility for convalescence. With his mom's help, he started learning how to live as an amputee. Basically, she came back back and forth right up until I kind of got comfortable walking on my prosthetic. So again, like I said, going back to you know, how, how you guys see me walk on my prosthetic right now, that took me like a, a couple of months, but it wasn't until, like I said, around uh, April, spring of uh, 2012, that's how I kind of got really comfortable with walking on the prosthetic to the point where I was, you know, almost got most of my mo- mobility back. The physical rehab was a distraction from his grief. It gave him something tangible to work on. And he made progress slowly but surely. I'm glad they gave me the choice. And honestly, and I think you can both probably attest to it, seeing me walk on this thing, uh, I feel like I made the right choice. A lot of people don't even realize that I'm an amputee unless I show them this. So you're pulling up your pant leg right yeah. now and showing your prosthetic. So tell us, tell us about this technology. Tell us about your prosthetic, what it's made out of and all okay. that kind of stuff. Well, the uh, main base right here is uh, carbon fiber, and I can just pull it up like this. You've got your, your pant leg rolled up, and there's a blue sock kind of thing that's over your, which would be your calf, basically up to your knee, essentially? Yeah, right, I would say, right, right up to my, uh, I'd say, right here, just past my ankle a okay. bit. That's, where, that's how much they took off. The stump swells and retracts with changes in his diet, which means he has to get his prosthetic recalibrated or change the number of socks he wears from time to time. But for it says all of that is manageable. So you get around pretty well on that, like you oh, said. Yeah. People, like I said, a lot of people don't even notice. Nope. Wow. Wow. That's actually the only person that really noticed was uh, my own mother. She actually noticed that uh, a difference in my walk. So because she's my mother. Yeah, moms tend to know us pretty well. Yep. Because of his injury, Forrett was medically retired from the Navy in November 2012, a little more than a year after his surgery. And then what are you doing with yourself at that point? What, you know, what are you doing all day? I mean, I'm not, look, I'm not like a full-blown alcoholic or anything, though. But there was a while, kind of, the few years after I got out, where I spent a lot of time kind of, to put it lightly, drinking and partying. Mm -hmm. So... What if you were not putting it lightly? <laughs> I was really big into the uh, goth punk and metal scene growing up, so I'd go to some of the uh, goth clubs in San Diego, and I'd get kind of really, really fucked up. And I remember, I think, one time kind of, like, puking on a park bench somewhere, I think. You know, because when I got out, I had, you know, a good deal of money in the bank, and that combined with my mental health at that time, obviously not a good situation. 
Forrett saw a therapist when he was still at Balboa and got diagnosed with PTSD. He continued seeking therapy off and on in the years after he got out, which helped, but there were other problems related to his traumatic brain injuries that didn't seem to improve with therapy. To this day, I have problems with like memory, um, remembering things, um, staying focused, reacting to certain situations, sometimes overreacting. The drinking helped him cope with his mental issues for a while, but it also made him gain back the weight he'd worked so hard to lose. He was on a cocktail of pain meds, too, and he worried about becoming dependent. He'd come so far from that aimless kid who called the Navy recruiter desperate for a change, and he didn't want to go back there. Forrett was determined not to let himself slide further. So he cut down on his drinking and weaned himself from the pain meds. He started hitting the gym and got back to a healthier weight. He enrolled in college and started working toward a psychology degree. But Sangin kept dragging him back. So for you, what do you think was harder, overcoming your physical injury or dealing with the release of all that pressure and stress and dealing with the memories of everything that happened? What do you, what do you think was at the time harder for you and what do you think is harder now? The second one, both back then and now kind of. Because, I mean, going back and remembering the day I lost this, honestly, that didn't... I would say mentally mess with me as much as it did when McDaniels died. Yeah. Take a little break again. Thanks. (laughs) We'll be back after the break. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I told For It that we would stop any time he wanted to take a break and collect himself. So we grab a couple more shiners from the fridge, and after a few minutes, we pick back up talking about McDaniels. That day, going back on that day, I would say that day definitely has messed with me more mentally than it did actually losing the leg. Learning to walk again wasn't really that big of a deal for me. Ford says his biggest hurdle was his conscience. He blamed himself for McDaniel's death, and he worried that the McDaniel's family would blame him too. In 2013, he had an opportunity to meet Brent McDaniel's, Josh's dad. Uh, it was a uh, reunion. Uh, we went to uh, D.C. and got to visit the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. For it spotted Brent McDaniels immediately in the crowd of former Marines and family members. He looked exactly like an older version of Josh. I didn't know what he would say to me. I didn't know if he would, uh, if he'd like uh, blame me for what happened. But we talked, and uh, I know I'm getting emotional, right? But uh, yeah, we we talked, and uh, he said he didn't, you know, he understood everything that happened, and that definitely did uh, take a off my shoulder, so. Cool. Take a break again. Quick one. Yeah, okay, thanks. Take a breath. Just breathe. We can stop, but just we're not going to stop rolling if that's okay. right. Just, just breathe, and, and we'll, we'll pick back up again when you're ready. Okay. Yeah. It's still something that does bother me to this day, but, you know, listening to Brent and... Uh, you know, hearing him and how he said, like, hey, I understand you did all you could do really did help me out a lot. It helped me out in more ways. Again, like I said, I'm trying to compose myself. So, yeah, but, uh, yeah. None of this is your fault. Survivor's guilt. Yeah. And so tell people who don't know what survivor's guilt is. It's essentially when you feel responsible for something that I would say wasn't necessarily your fault in these kinds of situations. So something I've kind of dealt with off and on throughout the years. Forrest still has trouble talking to his family about his war experiences and the baggage he came home with, including his survivor's guilt. But that second family, his military family, he can still lean on them. Usually when I'm talking with them, I can be a little bit more kind of honest and everything about it. Yeah. When it comes to those kind of like more kind of emotional and gruesome things that happen, that's generally who I usually talk about it with. And with them, you don't have to worry about freaking them out. Yeah. That too, what their reaction is going to be and everything. And are, is it important to have those kinds of people in your life? Like people like Mendoza, who you can... Oh, yeah. I mean, all the guys from both my squad and platoon, they've you know helped me out a lot. So mm-hmm. I definitely love them family 
I'm really happy to hear you say that, actually. Thanks. The love between people who serve together in such extreme circumstances. And it really is love, isn't it? Yep. For it says that love makes it possible to live with the rest of it. I feel like in the long run, I've made a lot of really close connections with people. I mean, if I had never joined, I'd never have met any of these people. I'd still be working a shitty job in retail. You know, physically it's fucked me up. You know, losing a leg, dealing with having PTSD and anxiety issues and stress issues and issues with alcohol and such. But, uh, be honest, I, I don't regret joining or anything. And I certainly don't regret, honestly, you know, going to Afghanistan. It would have been nice, nicer to have gotten a little bit more training, to be a little bit more prepared. Because, again, we were just kind of rushed out the door pretty much. But you did the best you could with what you had. Yeah, yeah. It has changed me in terms of outlook on life and everything. It has made me very thankful for being alive and that, you know, things could have been a lot worse. Yeah. Fuck. It's not fair. Well, life's not fair, so that's... I mean, and again, going back, I mean, I've never... I don't really like to complain about these things because, you know, in general, I don't... I've never believed life, for the most part, is necessarily should be fair. I think that's just how it is. I think that's just how the universe is and everything. It's, you know, that's just how things are. Like I said, I'm just glad to be still here and talking to both of you. I promised for it I'd make him dinner, so I tossed some elk sausage in the skillet and warm up leftover sauerkraut and mashed potatoes. It feels good to step away from the awkwardness of the mics and stretch our legs. We keep rolling from a distance. I think it's actually very courageous. Thank you. I really do. You know? In some ways, I think it's easier to go into a gunfight than it is to talk about this stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not fun. It hurts. Like, going back to what you said, I mean, talking with Nick Daniels' father, you know, it definitely uh, helped me out. But, uh... It's, it's taken a while for me to kind of get over a bit. Well, you don't have to get over it. You just have to grow around it. And I don't want to say I, I know what you've been through, because I don't. I really don't. But if I can suggest that I've tasted a sliver of it, I know what it feels like to wonder why, why somebody else got it and you did I tell for it how two guys from my unit got killed in a suicide bombing. It was during my own deployment to Iraq in 2004. And I tell him about losing more friends over the years to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and how hard it's been to live with my own sadness and guilt. In my own life, um, what I've come around to is that it's like a tree that gets struck by lightning, or it's like somebody who loses a limb. You can walk, but you're never going to get that one back. Right. That tree that gets hit by lightning and gets split in half but doesn't die, it's never going to be unsplit in half. 
that will grow around that injury, will incorporate that injury into what it, whatever it becomes. But that thing that it becomes will be just as alive, be just as beautiful, will be just as whole. It just will have that scar. And sometimes that scar hurts. Sometimes that scar throbs. Sometimes you feel that missing limb. But you grow around it, right? You don't have to forget it. You don't have to move past it. You don't, have, you know. I, I actually get kind of upset when people are like, "Oh, how do you find closure? How did you move past that? Or it's time for you to put this behind yeah, you." Yeah, like, I, fuck I, you. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Fuck you. That's usually, I mean, it's just a clear indicator they have no fucking idea what they're talking about. We drive for it back to Mendoza's apartment after dinner, and I offer to come back in the morning to take him to the airport for his 10 a.m. flight. Good morning. Morning. So do you know what terminal you're flying out of? Uh, yeah, American Airlines. I think it's Terminal 2. Okay. All right, here we go. Rocking the shorts, I like it. Yeah, it makes uh, travel easier, actually. Yeah? So I don't have to, like, show them the leg or anything they already see it so it makes it just makes it more uh, streamlined they have to wipe down my leg and everything for uh, security purposes so it oh, just really? makes like i said it, it just makes it my life way more easier just to wear uh shorts at the airport on the drive ford tells me he's giving up on his college plans once and for all he says he's going to become a plumber he's planning to move to houston to enroll in a nonprofit training program that's free for veterans and to be near Manny Mendoza, his friend from Third Squad. But for now, Forrest's headed back home to San Diego, where he's working as a security guard at a storage facility to supplement his VA disability checks. Near the airport, we pass a couple of huge glass and steel buildings with the familiar name emblazoned in big red letters on a sign out front. Halliburton headquarters. Oh, they yeah. made some money in Iraq and Afghanistan, didn't they? Yeah. Halliburton is the oil services behemoth that Dick Cheney ran before he became George W. Bush's vice president. The company made tens of billions of dollars in government contracts in Iraq and Afghanistan. One clear winner in the wars since 9-11. You might call it the belly of the beast. In our last few minutes together, I ask for it if he has any questions for me. I mean, yeah, the only other, I mean, like... I mean, how do you feel, I guess, about, you know, the situation we're in over there? Oh, boy. Let's see, we got <laughs> 0.4 miles <laughs> terminal. Um, I feel like we've made a lot of mistakes that have gotten a lot of people killed and a lot of people hurt and caused a lot of political and cultural problems that are going to take generations to fix if they can ever be fixed at all and I think you know for me the biggest frustration over the last 15 years since I came home from Iraq is that all of this suffering has occurred and most Americans don't seem to give it a passing thought on a day-to-day -day basis and for me that's just really frustrating and it makes me really upset and you know I had to spend years trying to tamp down that anger and frustration and, and try to try to channel it into something productive which is a big part of the reason why I'm yeah. going around talking to you guys because you know it helps me feel a little bit less alone to reconnect to the people who I was with as a journalist over there and to people that I served with and to try to take our stories and 
and remind people that all of this happened. You know, that seems like right. the least I can do. But no, I mean, I've been pretty upset about it all these years. I've been pretty. Yeah, I've kind of pretty. Fun. I would definitely say I feel kind of the same way. I've gone kind of back and forth in my mind a bit, kind of try to like justify it. But overall, I I completely agree with you on that. Yeah. Well, here we are. I'll just pull up right up here. Thank you for your time. It was good to see you again. Good to I'll, see you too. I'll keep you in touch. And yeah. If you need anything, just uh, let me know. I will. Thank you. Thanks so much for finally reaching out. I'm really glad yeah. that we. I, I'm, I'm kind of looking at it. Yeah, I think I, I'm glad I kind of got a lot of that stuff off my chest. So. Good. feeling I just I could see that as he was saying goodbye and saying that it actually that he was glad that he talked that he was getting emotional and I just think it's really brave for people like him to be willing to to tell their stories and I just got so lucky I just got so fucking lucky in every single way to not get hurt physically, to get out of all this shit with my brain mostly whole. Um, and so to be around these guys and for them to trust me to talk about the most difficult things in their lives and, and to bring up all this stuff that they don't talk about with anyone is just a, it's really hard. I mean, it's, it's really hard and it's really rewarding but it's also feels like a huge amount of responsibility and you know, I have to keep it together. I have to, I can't break down in front of these guys. I have to listen to them. It's kind of the story of story of my life in a certain way. So yeah, sometimes it just sneaks up on me. <laughs> sometimes it just sneaks up on me and grabs me when I least expect it. Next time on Third Squad, we stay right here in the Houston suburbs to meet up with Manny Mendoza. I just I'm really fucked up because I didn't want to make her worried, so I told her I was an electrician while I was in the Marine Corps. What? Yeah. I didn't tell her I was infantry until the night before I left. That's a big Fuck. lie. <laughs> yeah. As soon as the sun comes up, and we're out there looking for pieces. And we found them everywhere. It, it feels wrong talking about this. Um, it feels disrespectful. One night, yeah, I just felt like I gave up. Or actually, I did give up. I was like, eh, let's just put it all away now. Let's just put it all away. 
Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeartMedia. Funding support from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. Original music by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Benjamin Bush, Caitlin Esch, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, and Lena Ferguson. If you'd like to see my photographs from Sangin and from our road trip, please visit thirdsquad.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Elliot Woods. Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.